You're listening to You Can't Take It With You, the KPMG Law Estate Planning Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Higdon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Elena Speck. Hi, Elena. Hi, Andrew. We're also being joined by our guest, Kate Marples, from our Vancouver office. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Andrew and Elena. Thanks for having me. We are all estate and trust lawyers with KPMG Law, LLP. Our show is about estate planning and all the legal, financial, and tax issues involved. It's a huge topic, so each week we pick a manageable chunk of something we find interesting and share it with our listeners. If you're a lawyer, an article, or a law student, a professional advisor, or someone who just wants to be prepared, this podcast is for you. On today's show, we'll be talking about substantial compliance and will variation. As always, we start our show with a quick disclaimer. We are lawyers after all. This podcast is intended to provide general information about estate planning and administration, and we cannot advise on anyone's unique situation. Consequently, we ask you not to take the materials we present as legal advice. Estates law is complicated and everyone's circumstances are different. Please speak to your lawyer for legal advice. KPMG Law is a truly global firm with offices in more than 140 countries, but this podcast will speak only to planning and administration in Canada. Okay, Elena, what's substantial compliance and why are we talking about it? Well, in order to answer that, we have to back up a bit and talk about formalities. A formality is a special symbolic act the law requires in order to make certain acts legally enforceable. Formalities are often unintuitive extra steps that signal to the participants that they're engaging in something solemn and important and that they mean for the law to take effect. Perhaps you've heard of a house being sold or transferred for $1. At that price, why not just give it away for free? Well, in order for a common law contract to be enforceable, the law requires that there be some amount exchanged, what we call consideration. The consideration doesn't need to be reasonable to be sufficient. Almost any amount will do. So one or two dollars is commonplace. And at least for transfers between spouses, it's what some people call natural love and affection. But what is important is that some amount more than just natural love and affection is exchanged as consideration. This symbolic exchange is understood in every common law jurisdiction as a necessary part of contract formation and a classic example of a formality. So making a will also requires the careful adherence to formalities. It's not enough to just jot down a list of people and stuff on a piece of paper that you want to go to certain people and expect it to be legally enforceable. Special formalities are required to make it legally binding. Generally speaking, the formalities for making wills are similar in all provinces, with some differences in Quebec as we covered in our podcast with Helena from our Quebec office. In Ontario, the rules are set out in the Succession Law Reform Act, and in BC, the rules are found in the Wills, Estates, and Succession Act. That's right, Andrew. Both forms of legislation provide for one of the main types of will, a will with witnesses, but only the Ontario legislation allows for the second main type of will, a holographic will. A will with witnesses is the most common form. The formalities associated with this type of will are that the will must be in writing, And it must be signed at the end by the testator in front of two witnesses, who must also sign in front of the testator. And in Ontario, those rules have changed a bit during the pandemic. At the moment, we can sign wills by video conference, doing away with the in-presence of needing to be in person, so long as everyone is present on video at the same time, sees everybody else signing, and one of the witnesses is a lawyer. Is that true in BC as well, Kate? Yes, a similar rule is true here as well, but there's no requirement that one of the witnesses be a lawyer. These new witnessing provisions have been incorporated formally into the BC legislation after being introduced as a temporary measure at the beginning of the pandemic. The second type of will, a holographic will, refers to a handwritten will where no witnesses are required. A holographic will is valid in certain provinces, including Ontario, so long as it is written entirely in the testator's own handwriting and signed at the end by the testator. 
but a holographic will is not valid in BC. There are some other types as well, some special simplified procedures for members of the armed forces on active duty, as well as a recognition of the convention providing a uniform law on the form of an international will. All of the above are fascinating and deserving of their own podcast, but for now, we'll stick to the two main types. Okay, Elena. So we know that there are formalities associated with making a will, but what happens if they're not met? Well, things can get scary. I'll return to the idea you first asked. What is substantial compliance? In jurisdictions where the substantial compliance doctrine is allowed, wills that don't necessarily perfectly satisfy the formalities, but which substantially comply, may be recognized by a court under certain conditions. Ontario is not a substantial compliance jurisdiction. Instead, it follows strict compliance. Sounds ominous. It is. Uh, The rule in Ontario is that if a will fails to satisfy the formalities set out in the Succession Law Reform Act, it fails. If there's an older will that did satisfy the formalities, it may govern. But if there are no such wills, or they've been revoked by the testator or by operation of law, the testator is deemed to have died intestate. And the estate will be administered according to the intestacy rules? That's right. Not ideal for many. Uh, I recall a file of mine where the testator had attempted to prepare a holographic will. She understood that the will needed to be handwritten, but hadn't understood that it needed to be entirely in her own handwriting. She was very ill, and a friend wrote the will for her, and she simply signed at the bottom. Unfortunately, although it was her intention to make one, this was not a holographic will. And since it wasn't witnessed by two people who signed in the presence of the testator, it didn't qualify as a will with witnesses either. I was retained after she had passed away, and I had to break the news that, under the laws of Ontario, she had died intestate. A nightmare. Yes, it was a very difficult conversation to have, but perhaps things are going to change. The Ontario legislature is considering new legislation to amend the Succession Law Reform Act, and the new legislative change introduces the Substantial Compliance Doctrine. Hey, that's swell. Tell me more. (laughs) The bill, which had its second reading on February 22nd, um, would become the Accelerating Access to Justice Act 2021 if it receives royal assent. It contains a number of amendments to important Ontario legislation. These include changes to the Courts of Justice Act and the Children's Law Reform Act. But of course, I want to focus on the changes to the Succession Law Reform Act. You'll be pleased to know that the proposed legislation would make permanent the emergency pandemic orders I mentioned above that allows us to oversee the execution of wills remotely by video conference. That's great. I assume that the requirement that a lawyer or a paralegal be part of the video conference remains? Yes, that's right. Okay, and that requirement is only in Ontario and does not apply in BC. I definitely think this is a welcome change. It's going to add more flexibility and greater access to legal resources for rural Ontarians and those who are sick and unable to leave their houses, care home, or hospital. Absolutely. And as some of our listeners may have already guessed, the proposed law would also transition Ontario from strict compliance to substantial compliance. That's right. It's new territory for Ontarians. But fortunately, KPMG Law has some experts who've seen this before. So, Kate, you've been working in a substantial compliance jurisdiction in B.C. What can you tell us about it and what does it mean for Ontarians? Well, B.C., as you know, enacted the substantial compliance doctrine by incorporating it into Will's legislation in 2014. So in legislative terms, it's relatively recent law for us as well. We're not alone, though. Alberta, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Saskatchewan have similar curing provisions. You're behind the times, Ontario. Our version of the Succession Law Reform Act, called the Wills, Estates, and Succession Act, contains a curative provision that permits the court, on application, to cure deficiencies in wills and other non-compliant documents that constitute a deceased testamentary intention. 
It can also be applied to cure formal invalidity in documents meant to revoke, alter, or revive wills or testamentary dispositions. So the cure applies only to formalities, not to substantive defects in making a will? That's right. The curing power of the court applies to deficiencies in the formal requirements of our wills legislation. The court may declare a record, document or writing, or marking on a will or document to be fully effective as a will, even though the document doesn't comply with the formalities required to make a will. It cannot be used to cure a will that is invalid for substantive reasons, such as testamentary incapacity or undue influence. The test for determining whether the legislation should apply is taken from a case called a state of young, in which the British Columbia Supreme Court stated that in order to cure a defect, the applicant must prove on a balance of probabilities that the document is authentic and represents the deceased's testamentary intentions. That's interesting. It sounds like this means the court will need to look at facts beyond the will itself in order to fix the deficient will. Does that mean the applicants need to need evidence regarding the testator's intentions? Yes, that's right. They'll have to satisfy the court that, more likely than not, the testator meant the document to reflect the testator's testamentary intentions. That could mean pleading evidence such as the presence of previous wills, funeral arrangements, specific bequests, the title of documents, the deceased signature, witness signatures, and the deceased's handwriting on the document. Obviously, much more difficult than just simply probating a compliant will. Oh, yes. It's not a replacement for a properly executed will. It's clearly intended as a fail-safe option. I understand that the BC Wills, Estates, and Succession Act further provides that a will can be rectified or varied. We don't have those terms in Ontario. What do those mean? Rectification and variation are two distinct concepts in the BC legislation, but both assume that a valid will already exists and that all the relevant formalities have been met. Rectification of a will is available if the court determines that the will fails to carry out the testator's intentions because of one of three things, an error arising from an accidental slip or omission, a misunderstanding of the testator's instructions, or a failure to carry out the testator's instructions. A really basic example of where rectification could apply is where the testator's will leaves his estate to his sister, Sarah, where in fact the testator only has one sister whose name is Linda, and the evidence shows that the name Sarah appears in the will in error. In practice, though, the facts in most rectification applications are much less clear. Variation of wills under the BC legislation is quite different. Under these rules, a will may be valid and carry out the testator's intentions, but a spouse or child of the deceased can allege that the will does not make adequate provision for their proper maintenance and support. If the court agrees with that claim, it can order a variation of the terms of the will that it thinks are adequate, just, and equitable in the circumstance. The possibility of such claims are significant issues for consideration where an individual is considering fully or partially disinheriting a spouse or child through their estate plan. This is quite a difference from the rules here in Ontario, where the courts have no statutory authority to make changes to a validly executed will, unless, of course, it's against public policy. There is the ability of a spouse or dependent to make a claim under the Succession Law Reform Act or pursuant to the Family Law Act for dependence relief or as an equalization claim. But it sounds as if the variation power in BC goes goes further than our legislation here, Kate. Yes, in BC, an adult independent child would even qualify to make a claim under the variation rules. That's very interesting. Okay, well, with that thought, it's now time for our segment called Articling Student Answers. Most aspiring lawyers in Canada undergo a period of on-the-job training before they can be called to the bar called Articling. KPMG Law employs and mentors Articling students at its offices in Vancouver and Toronto. 
If you're a law student and are interested in articling with KPMG Law, drop us a line for more information. Today, we're joined by Catherine McDonald, an articling student from our Vancouver office. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hi. What topic will you be presenting for us today? In keeping with the theme of this episode, I wanted to talk about a substantial compliance case out of BC. Cool. What have you got? The case is called Rempel Estate v. Dudley, and it was decided by the BC Supreme Court in November. It's a significant case as it continues a trend of courts in BC considering electronic documents in the context of detailing testamentary intent. Interesting. Tell us more. Mr. Rempel passed away in 2015 without a discernible will. The administrator of his estate, the Canada Trust Company, went through Mr. Rempel's papers, attempting to find any testamentary intention. As an aside, the Canada Trust Company is the legal name of Canada Trust, TD Bank's trust. Right. In the course of their search, they found two USB sticks. One contained a voice memorandum and several recordings of phone calls between the deceased and a notary, articulating his testamentary wishes. The other USB contained numerous folders and ten folders of documents expressing, to varying degrees, the deceased's testamentary wishes. The BC Supreme Court looked at two files specifically. A 2014 document labeled My Will as of June 5, 2014-notary package, and a 1998 document in a folder labeled Old Copy. The court concluded that the first document was merely a completed questionnaire intended to help a notary draft the will, and not a will itself. However, the second document proved more interesting. The 1998 document listed the deceased's assets, intended beneficiaries, and how the deceased wanted his assets distributed into five parts to the intended beneficiaries. It also contained testamentary language, such as, in the event of something happening to me and having no proper will, This is how I wish my estate to be handled, and these are my wishes. At the end of the document, the deceased's name was typewritten and dated. Counting against the 1998 document was its lack of an executor or trustee appointment, the fact that it was unsigned, and that it was found in a folder named Old Copies. Counting against the 1998 document was its lack of an executor or trustee appointment, the fact that it was unsigned, and that it was found in a folder named Old Copies. Mr. Rempel also failed to discuss the document with anyone prior to his death. In its analysis, the court wrote that in order to be a testamentary document capable of being cured under the legislation, the document must record a deliberate or fixed and final expression of the deceased's intention regarding disposal of his property on death. The court concluded that, on the balance of probabilities, the purely electronic document from 1998 succeeded in setting out Mr. Rempel's fixed and final testamentary intent and therefore the legislation could cure the facts. That's definitely an interesting fact pattern. It sounds like the court was highly motivated to find a solution here. What would have happened if the will couldn't have been cured? Well, Mr. Rempel was not survived by a spouse, had no children, no living siblings, and was predeceased by his father. Only his mother survived him, and she only survived by 18 days. Canada Trust was named as her executor. That explains their involvement in the application then. They needed to know the outcome as they were administering the mother's estate, a likely beneficiary of Mr. Rempel's estate. And certainly it would seem the only beneficiary under an intestacy. Yes, that's right. It's certainly an interesting case as a departure from the formalities ordinarily required by BC was significant. The court cited a 1997 Manitoban case where the court warned that the greater the departure from the requirements of formal validity the harder it may be for the court to reach the required state of satisfaction. It'll be interesting to see how far is too far. Thanks so much for this. Today, we learned that wills have certain formalities that need to be met in order for them to be enforceable at law. 
These formalities must be followed perfectly in strict compliance jurisdictions, but can be cured under substantial compliance doctrine in others. Ontario may be following BC and other Canadian provinces in introducing substantial compliance. BC legislation also gives its courts the right to vary wills in certain circumstances, but that would be a whole other podcast to discuss in detail. There is no plan on the horizon to bring this power to Ontario. If you've enjoyed our program, please like and subscribe to our future podcasts, and please consider sharing our show with your friends and colleagues. KPMG Law is an international law firm with offices around the world. Our affiliation with KPMG gives us an unprecedented ability to combine legal, accounting, and audit advice for our valued clients wherever they live and do business. At KPMG, we value integrity, excellence, and courage, working together with our clients for a better future. We'd like to thank the KPMG Business Enablement Team for editing and producing this podcast. Until next time, remember, you can't take it with you.